Hi there, and welcome to Calm After the Storm, Survivorship and Other Stories with Amy Syed. This episode is brought to you by the Quantum Genius Program. Today, we're going to talk to someone who has a harrowing story of survivorship and thriving there afterwards. We do want to start by sharing a content warning. Information shared on our podcast can be graphic in nature, and we recommend that you review the details of our podcast before listening. We appreciate you tuning in, and we hope that the story shared with you today is inspirational and helps you get through tough times that you may be facing. Welcome again to Calm After the Storm. This week, I'm speaking to the one and only Avery Francis. Avery has spent her career working with leading startups to navigate the challenging world of talent hiring and building creative cultures worth being a part of. She is a champion of diversity, inclusion, and belonging, and is the founder of The Bridge Program, a free code school for women identified and non-binary people in tech. Formerly the head of talent at League and director of talent at Wrangle.io, Avery specializes in helping the world's best startups and most talented people grow their teams and careers. So I will start by talking to you a little bit about your childhood and what was that like in terms of your earliest memories? Uh, Earliest memories are really good. I had a great relationship with my brother and sister and played a lot of Barbies and was just very creative and imaginative. And for the most part, was a part of really fantastic communities. My parents met when they were 15 and have been together ever since. So I think I'm really privileged to be surrounded by a lot of love and have been surrounded by a lot of love for the majority of my life. That's amazing. And so talk to me a little bit about your education and how you started out your career. So I started my educational career uh, with a bit of some bumps along the way. I ended up going to Fanshawe Western initially for broadcasting television for this special kind of like MIT program that they had that was um, like a college degree, but then it would lead into potentially a master's down the road. I went from, although I had a really fantastic childhood, I was very much a part of a relatively strict upbringing. So when I went to college, I kind of went um, a little bit wild and not wild in the way that you thing. I just was like enjoying my freedom. Like I loved being able to have a TV in my room and like to eat whatever I wanted and to go where I wanted when I wanted. So with that freedom came just like a lot of misdirection and not a lot of focus that I needed at the time uh, to kind of really like lean into this new educational part of my journey and this like this new season of my life. So um, for the first three months weren't... (laughs) of school weren't ideal. And uh, also because I was going to school for broadcasting television, I had all this film equipment and the first batch of film equipment that would probably cost my mom and dad like $2,500 to buy uh, was stolen by one of my roommates. So my mom and dad, yeah, they had to repurchase all this stuff because it's like mandatory for you to have it for this course, which is a very unfortunate barrier for folks from different like socioeconomic backgrounds. So they had to rebuy it. But I did like a, uh, I've never, I won't, the only people that know about this is my family. I was doing like a kind of like behind the scenes, like college type of documentary at the time. And when I did that, I was at a party and I was taking a bunch of like uh, videos of uh, my friends, like 
like doing their thing. There were some people doing drugs, although I was not participating in the drug endeavors. Uh, There were folks over there and I was documenting it. Long story short, for Mother's Day, when I was away at school, we did like a video with my camera and we all sang to the song, Mama, I Love You by the Spice Girls and had like sign on our dog and our cat. And it was like a beautiful movie or sorry, it was for my mom's birthday. We showed it on Christmas morning and everyone was crying. But then at the end of that video, they got the tail end of my behind the scenes at college (laughs) endeavors. I was quickly, I was pulled out of school as a result of the things that they saw on that tape. So it wasn't necessarily due to like a grade grades or like, I probably maybe would have pushed through, but it was just, uh, my parents had spent a lot of money for me to go to school. So I, I, this is where my, my professional career dropped out. And it's important part of the, my story mainly because it was at that point where I had to like pay my mom and dad back for the money that they spent while I was away at school for the four months that I was there, which was a lot of money. So I started working three different jobs. And um, one of those jobs was in recruiting. And it was mainly just a thing to make ends meet and to save up money to pay my parents back, but then also to get back into going to school. I had a taste of that freedom, right? And that life at college uh, and university. And I really, really wanted to get back there. So I was so laser focused on it but it carved out a new path for me while I didn't even really notice, know it was happening. Can you talk to me about that path a little bit and talk to me a little bit about what the next few years look like for you? They're hectic. So um, I would say that that initial kind of part of my journey when I dropped out of school was very depressed and very lonely, but I had always thought that I was going to get into like broadcasting or then I ended up going back to school for marketing. Eventually it was like a year after I had dropped out, but I was balancing, you know, working at Aritzia. I was working at the 407 ETR. And then I also was working at Apple one, which is an employment services agency. I was working as a front receptionist and then kind of worked my way up from there. I realized that there was an opportunity to make commission on hires. The recruiting world has changed a lot since then, but uh, I could make a significant amount of extra money by actually dabbling into recruiting. And because I was at the front line of a lot of the conversations that were happening within that office, I would build relationships with people and end up hiring them at different places. And it was for that reason that they ended up promoting me into like a talent manager. So I was kind of like on this cool succession path and all of a sudden making, you know, a lot more money than most people were making at that time. But then I ended up going back to school for full time whilst continuing my job at Apple One because I loved it. Oh wow. That's pretty busy too, Avery. Yeah. <laughs> How did you start your career then after university? Like what did that look like for you? So I'm one of those people that graduated into the global recession in 2009. So um, I already had a job, luckily, but then I was quickly laid off probably two to three months into my being like out in the world, real world and ready for work. And then applied for so many jobs at marketing companies and agencies because I really wanted to get into marketing. I didn't get the job. Anyway, I ended up falling into a recruiting position in BC for the 2010 Olympics. So I went there. You got a job at Wrangell. Can you talk to me a little bit about what that looked like for you? I finally found what I thought to be the perfect job. I was working at this company by the name of Boom Marketing, not Bloom, but Boom. It doesn't exist anymore for 
probably a magnitude of different reasons, but it wasn't a great place to work. And that was when I was like, you know what, this industry like marketing and advertising isn't for me. I want to get into tech. I really, really want to find myself at a tech company. Uh, and I was working with a uh, digital transformation agency and then I was headhunted in Wrangell. Uh, and I joined as their 35th employee and was tasked with the job of scaling the team to 200 people in a very, very short period of time. And how old were you uh, about the time that you joined Wrangell? Uh, so I was 28, I think. Yeah, 28, 27 or 28. And I joined in at like into a leadership Esque type of position. So at the company I was at prior, it was really fun. You know, it was that time in my career where I was a part of like the younger cool group at the office and we would hang out on the weekends and go to baseball games together and we would be on the same, you know, like soccer teams, whatever, especially being in HR when I transitioned over to Wrangle and I was like that person that was doing HR and recruiting and talent. And I had this like lead type of title and I was wanting to move into a director role. I started to like kind of distance myself from that part of the culture as much just so it would make my life a little bit easier. And that way I would have that separation. Cause I was just so, I had all this imposter syndrome that I was dealing with being in like a relatively senior and very like high impact role while still wanting to be like very much deeply involved in the culture at the company. And you got promoted, right? After you joined Wrangle? Yeah. So I was there for a year and a half. So not like a, an incredibly long period of time. And I was uh, promoted to director of talent probably eight months into my joining the team. I was very busy. There was a lot going on. Uh, I don't feel like I properly celebrated it. I remember being like so happy when Nick, the founder and CEO, offered me this promotion. I was like, oh my gosh, can we hug? And he was like, no, yeah. <laughs> we can't hug. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just was so excited. So now you got this promotion. And then I guess there was a social after this promotion was granted to you. And they were going to announce your promotion, I believe, at that social. Is that right? Yeah. So um, it hadn't officially been announced yet. I had been promoted for a couple of weeks, uh, I guess, like not unofficially to director of talent. And uh, I was celebrating this promotion. Like I said, I tried to distance myself as much as I possibly could from like social events and everything. But we would oftentimes at Wrangle, we would have like Thursdays and Fridays, people would stay behind and have drinks and cocktails and like hang out, play games, whatever it may be, do karaoke. It was all very like, for the most part, from my experience, wholesome fun. But there was this one evening where we were like celebrating. I remember making plans to go to the keg uh, to get steak and everything with a couple of my, you know, my peers. And I wasn't there late because we went for dinner, but we were just having a couple of drinks. And then I had a situation with someone that was at the office and in a closet, unfortunately. This is back at the office. So can you talk to me a little bit about what happened? It all happened like so fast and so slow. So we were all, I remember like standing in a circle, just like having, you know, drinks and we we're having a conversation actually ironically about relationships. And at the time I was in a long distance relationship. We were just talking about relationships and marriage. And one of my uh, peers was just talking about, you know, his experience being in a long distance relationship and how they eventually came together. And uh, during that conversation, this man was like rubbing my back and I was wearing a blazer all day with like an open back, like knit cardigan, like vest. So it was hot. I was wearing a lot of layers <laughs> and what seemed like a good idea for the work day. I was like, you know what? It's the end of the work day. Like people will see like maybe an inch of like my back exposed, but 
I'm hot. So I'm taking off my jacket. And while I was standing there and we were talking, he was like, put his hand behind my vest. and was like rubbing my lower back. And I remember just freezing and looking around at everyone's eyes being like, is this is this happening? Can they see this? Oh my gosh, I don't want them to see this. And I just stood there like still. And there's another time where he like grazed his arm around my leg and then like grazed his arm past my, like my butt. And it was happening, but every single time it happened, I felt so much shame and so much like worry that I felt like, oh my gosh, I just hope no one's seeing this. I wasn't thinking about myself. And then at one point I was like, I wanted to remove myself from the situation. And also as the HR person, I was the only individual that had keys to the closet where like our additional stock of chips and beer and things would be. We were there and we needed more food or something. So I was like, I'm going to go to the closet and get some stuff. And as I was walking to the closet, I didn't realize that he was following me. And then when we were in the closet, he you know, attempted to assault me. There was definitely like a physical kind of tussle between he and I. I kind of went into like survival mode and I just like talked him down. I was quite worried because what people don't know is that before that situation, a week earlier, he and I had a very uncomfortable interaction. He was like very distraught and he was just not in a good place. And I was quite worried about him. And we were in an office that didn't have a window that you could look into and I, or like anything. It just looks like a closed office. And he was crying hysterically. And as an HR person, like I felt for him, you know, like I, I wanted to support him. I talked to him about like what we had available for him to support him during this time. He was very erratic in some of the things he was saying and quite angry and hateful about like the people that work at the company, some people that he'd had like not so great interactions with. He just was feeling left out. And I think he was feeling really alone. And I suggested that he connect with people and try to build bridges. And, you know, I just said the things that I would say from an HR perspective in terms of like support that he has. And then also just like I was there for him to talk to. So knowing all that and knowing the fragile state he was in, my concern when I was in the closet was I was worried about him. I was worried not necessarily about myself, but although like because I've had experiences prior to that where I have been assaulted, I have been raped outside of the workplace, I knew what was happening and I knew what could have happened had I not done something or talked it down. So I just didn't want to scream or didn't want to make a lot of noise. I didn't want to cause any sort of ruckus. So What I did was I just basically talked to him as though like one day he and I could be together and he was like grabbing me like whilst this was happening and I just had to like talk through the whole process. Yeah, thinking about it makes me kind of upset, but it was hard because... I was like trying to save myself, but also was trying to like maneuver so gently and softly around him and his ego and the emotions that I knew he was carrying with him into that situation. So it was just, it was a lot. Luckily, like I feel good. I think that things could have been a lot worse had I not taken that approach. However, I don't think that anyone should ever have to be in that situation. The workplace immediately just didn't feel safe to me anymore. Experiencing different forms of harassment and assault outside of work. If you're at a bar or a party or whatever, like Those are not acceptable things. They're not okay things. But when they happen, you know, sometimes you're able to easier, like you can rationalize them. 
you can blame it on drinking or if it's a bar or something like the context sometimes like helps you to rationalize it. Whereas when you're at work, you're like, this is meant to be a safe space. Like this is meant to be a place of business. Like this is not where people, especially HR people that speak loudly and proudly about creating spaces where people should be welcomed and not have to have these types of challenges, period. It just made me feel like completely invalidated. And it made me feel like maybe I didn't deserve that promotion. Like maybe people didn't respect me enough for me to be in that position. So you kind of turned the blame inwards onto yourself a little bit as well. Oh yeah. Everything. I went through every detail. It's like, it was the vest. Like, it's funny. I still have that vest in my closet and I've never worn it since. It's one of those things where it's like, I remember exactly what I was wearing. Like I've gone over what I was wearing, like who I talked to that night, like how I navigated things. Sorry. No, it's okay. Take your time. Take your time. It was like, you do these things, you analyze every single angle of it. And it's so easy to like blame yourself. That's where you always end up because you can't really have that two-way conversation with the person. Even though I knew that he wasn't in like a great mental state, I kind of blame myself too, because like I had that context. I had that very uncomfortable and strange conversation with him. And I chalked it up to like, that was my job as an HR person. Like I should be there to support people and I need to take myself out of it. But I do think that me drawing that bridge with him and being there for him and like kind of being there to emotionally, emotionally support him, put me at risk. Uh, I do think that, um, and I blame myself for that for a long time. I know that's not the case now, but and it wasn't until I came home and I told my parents and at the time I, I literally just moved home because I was wanting to save money and I was in a long distance relationship. I had like so much flexibility with Wrangle. Like I was living sometimes in Iceland for like a couple weeks at a time. Like, so it was great. So luckily I, w- I was living with my parents and I came home and I, and I was like in shock and they're like, are you all right? And it's like, cause I went for dinner afterwards and he was there. Like he was at the dinner table with me. So you went to, to dinner after this happened at the office. Yeah. So after this happened, like we were located at King and Spadina. Like we walked down King, like walked down Spadina, went up King, like went to dinner together. I sat across the table from him, like for a full dinner. Well, I mean, you were probably in shock like, still though, right? Yeah. Like you probably were like, what do I do now? I can't really not go to dinner. Let's just go to dinner and have that out of body type of experience, right? I, th- I feel like uh, this is really resonating with me as well. What action did you take afterwards? Like you talked to your parents and they probably told you. Yeah. The next morning I messaged the COO, now COO at Wrangle, and she was and is still a very close friend of mine. And I messaged her and I said, something really weird happened last night at social and I need to talk to you about it. And she just messaged me back immediately saying, okay, Monday morning, if you need to come early, let me know. Um, I'll be here for you. We can do it discreetly. We can meet off site. You let me know what you want to do. So we met that morning earlier and I told her about what happened. And she said, I will be here with you like every step of the way. And that's what she did. Oh, that's amazing. So what did they end up doing about this? So we spoke with Nick, who's the CEO, and he immediately was like, I don't want him here anymore. <laughs> He's got to go. But there's certain protocols as an HR person. So I was in a very unique position because I was HR at the time and I was also the victim. So it was hard because I was advising Nick on what to do, what we should do, whilst also knowing fully what I wanted to do wasn't really in line with what's like appropriate or what is protocol for a situation like this. So 
I had said to Nick, like, you know, he believed me wholeheartedly. And also I had received messages from the individual at the time. It wasn't like blatantly admitting what he had done, but he'd sent me multiple Slack messages apologizing for the situation that transpired. He had also had had talked to someone who was with us for dinner that night. I had left. And then when they were walking home together, he had shared with that individual that he had been inappropriate with me and that he didn't know what to do. It's kind of funny now because if you know the individual that he had this conversation with, he was just such a fantastic ally to me and friend during my time at Wrangle. But he he's very cynical and like he's got a really dry sense of humor. But he's like, I don't know. He's like, there's something about it. There's something about that conversation. I kind of knew I was never going to see him again. So that kind of leads me into what happened next, which Wrangle and team, like the executive team acted very quickly. It was Nick who and and Camus who ran through that entire situation on my behalf. I was not involved. It was just mainly they had a conversation. They let him know that they knew what happened. He acknowledged it and said that it was true. And then he was gone basically the next day. So on the Monday, we had the conversation and by Wednesday, he was gone. How did you feel going back to work even after he was gone? I felt really anxious and exposed. No one knew why. It was just myself, like even other executives and leaders on the team, you know, the CTO, the operations manager, my boss, the VP of operations, like they didn't know. They had no idea. The only people that knew about what had happened were the individual that was involved. And then of course, Nick and Camus, those are the only, and then I told two people that I felt comfortable telling at the time, but no one at the company knew. And because we were a culture that didn't just like, fire people willy nilly. People wanted answers. Like they were like, where is he? Why is he gone? He was a good performer. So I had to like live with that for months. Yeah. And what would you say after this incident would have been, in your opinion, your rock bottom moment? It was like months later. I think I was just running on empty. Like I really kind of was working a lot. I was like really sick. I was run down. I like internalize a lot of it. Like I just, it happened on the Friday. I was at work on Monday and I didn't take time off. I showed up to work on the Monday and the Tuesday and the Wednesday and the Thursday after that. Like I just went through the motions and it wasn't until three or four months later after I had reported it. And of course the individual was terminated that I kind of hit this wall. Uh, I was feeling really depressed and really down and really low. I ended up taking a leave of absence uh, so I could just get my mind right because I just, I couldn't stop crying. I had a really hard time, like just like existing, like a daily, like going to work, like driving, like being in the office. Like I just kind of pulled myself away. To be fair, I wasn't in a great relationship at the time. I was in a relationship with a narcissist and that doesn't help situations like when you're going through a point, like when you're, you know, experiencing some major trauma. And I think that for me, what it did was it, because I had had experiences with assault and rape prior to being at Wrangle and prior to that experience and I had never dealt with them, it just brought up everything. Everything came up, everything came to a head. And mainly because it was just like at the peak of me too. So I was being like, taunted, right? And reminded of these situations. It was just too much. And then all that whilst being in the same, you know, space, being in the lunchroom where that thing happened, having to go to like the snack room to like refill snacks. So there was one day where I literally couldn't get out of my car and I like cried the entire way. I was sitting in the parking lot and I was wanting to get into the office and I just couldn't. And the only thing that I could do to leave out of the car was like, 
get out of the car and just say you're taking a leave of absence and then just go home. That's what's going to happen today. And when I, when that went through my head, it's what helped me to like actually take those first few steps, make it into the office, have that hard conversation. And then I went home and I took a, I think I was gone for like maybe three weeks. And then I just went right back to the work. And at that point, that's when I realized I'd had to remove myself from the situation and find a new job. I was disturbed by what happened to her, but encouraged that she is talking about it. What people who do not identify as women don't know is that we are harassed and spoken to about our physical appearance from a very young age in our homes, in public, and by complete strangers. Sexual assault is also more common than you know. One in three women are sexually harassed at work. Meanwhile, only 71% come forward. There is a culture of women being taught not to rock the boat, that in order for us to move forward with our careers, it is important to masculinize ourselves, dropping some of the traits that make us vulnerable or authentic in the workplace. Avery talked about not mixing work with pleasure or friendships. I identify strongly with this. It's a form of protectionism and strange because we spend more time at work than we often do in our personal relationships and environments. And during this time, the three weeks that you were off, what were you doing in that time? Like, is there anything that you were doing to help yourself or to help heal any of these, like sexual assault and rape is so invasive and it's such a violation for us, right? Crying, hanging out with my mom, my dad, (laughs) trying to like deal, sleeping. Yeah, I I also got into painting. So I went and like bought a bunch of canvases. And yeah, I remember going because I like remember just wearing like mismatched layers of like pajamas and sweaters and like a house coat. And like it feels like it was out of a movie now, but I was disheveled. I was crumbling and falling apart. And I went to Michael's to get myself a canvas and like paints. And I desperately was like, I need to paint. Like there's this, I don't, I hadn't painted in like years, like since I was in high school. And I just had this like pull to do it. And I went there and I forgot my debit card and everything. So I just like went without a purse or any of that stuff. And they were like, sorry, we're not going to, you have no money kind of thing. And (laughs) I started crying. I started bawling my eyes out at Michael's and I had like a bit of a breakdown. And the woman was like, don't worry about it. Just just take the stuff. Keep on. <laughs> <laughs> so I got in my car with my canvases and uh, and my paints and all everything. And I just started creating. And that was like a really good outlet for me at the time. I did a lot of other things. Like I went to a Reiki therapist. I went twice. I spoke to a psychologist. I spoke to another therapist. I spoke to friends. I spoke with family. I wrote, I journaled, I tried meditating, like nothing really like hit the way that it did for painting. Like I just felt like I just poured out literally my feelings onto those canvases. And it's funny, I've literally haven't painted since that moment. Like I was in a very, very low place. Like I started posting, it was a really good distraction too. So I started posting about the painting and people were like, I love your paintings. Can I buy them? And I was like, sure. I have no room for all these canvases. I was living at home at the time. I have like two walls in my apart in this apartment off the side of my parents' house. I could do it. So I ended up selling some of these paintings and that was the end of it. It's just, (laughs) I created the paintings and sold them and just have never painted again. (laughs) Wow. 
I mean, you probably have a deep seated uh, talent for painting. <laughs> Maybe. But it's, yeah, I was it's amazing how I got you through the trauma though. It's, I mean, it's, it's scientifically proven that some people have the knack, right. To heal through art therapy, which is really what you were doing, but that's, that's beautiful. I had no idea. And I've been looking into, oh, I had looked into it since I was watching a show on Netflix called Abstract. And they talked about healing through art and creativity and um, just like creating things, building things and how people can heal through it and how it has like a history of healing. And it wasn't until like a year or so later that I realized, whoa, like I was onto something there. I don't know what how it came to me or why. And it was my mom that suggested it. She's like, maybe you should paint. And at first I just painted a bunch of furniture in my apartment and then it was really good. It was a great distraction because instead of staying up all night and crying or staring at my wall or my ceiling, I would like stay up all night and paint. But I I think that there was a lot of other things that were contributing to me feeling that way. Like at the end of the day, I think that the team at Wrangell uh, did a great job. And I think that they did also what you're not really necessarily supposed to do from an HR perspective. Uh, And they did that to support me and because they did it based on their values. Right. And I think that that was one reason why I talk about this often though, is as an HR person, it was such an illuminating experience for me because I realized that even when companies do the right thing, when these things happen, it doesn't really change the end result. I ended up leaving anyway. But it's interesting because when I did share about my experience, the CEO and founder of Wrangle reached out to me like probably about three or four days later saying, hey, just so you know, like, thank you so much for your bravery and thank you so much for coming forward. There's like three other people. The situations weren't the same as mine. They were like, of course, like I'm saying just like on paper, you know, there wasn't to our knowledge assault or any sort of physical uh, altercation or interactions that had taken place, but there were definitely some verbal interactions that were concerning for other people. So they thought that like he was fired as a result of like interactions that they were having or one person had thanked it. So they thanked their manager because of, because of it. So my experience with these is that these aren't usually one-off situations that when someone's not respecting someone else's personal space and their boundaries and really pushes that limit. Oftentimes it's a pattern. That's amazing to hear. And these people, I guess they hadn't come forward to your knowledge while you were in in HR. No. And to this day, I have no idea who those people were. Uh, It wasn't disclosed to me. That's why I did it. Uh, It was like a hundred percent. Like I just felt like I had a moral obligation to come forward and to share what had happened because No, I got nothing out of that situation. I ended up leaving a job that I loved and a team that I built myself where I was on a trajectory for growth. I had steady, great money coming in, like six figure salary. Like I had lots of flexibility, was working from home two days a week at the time where that wasn't like a thing that was usual. It was a very great gig and I had so much flexibility and agency and respect and just like all the things you kind of want in a job, I had it there and coming forward, right. And facing that reality and saying those things out loud and like sitting across the table from my CEO being so vulnerable. Like I don't want people to see me like that at work. It's just not something I was comfortable with and I'm still not entirely comfortable with. I'd prefer just to keep things light and fun (laughs) when it comes to the work that I do. (laughs) Cause for the most part, it is heavy. 
Art therapy is a common modality used to help people access their deeper selves. Through art, we access parts of our mind we do not normally access in a logical sense, and therefore it allows for healing and repair of past experiences. It's important for victims to come forward and tell their stories because it does need to become more commonplace that we discuss sexual assault in the public forum. The more we discuss it, the less likely it will happen. The shame associated with a sexual assault is often the paramount reason for why a woman does not come forward. There are cultural values, disruptions to our own reputations, and women often are blamed for their own assaults. As we speak our truths and commit to becoming allies for each other, I believe strongly that we can unite to make way for progress in reporting, accountability, and create a culture where perpetrators will think twice before doing something like this. So what happened then? Talk to me a little bit about the trajectory of your career and Avery Francis as we know her today. Oh my gosh. I feel like I'm like a rat <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> like I just get like backed into a corner and I'll chew my way through anything. I've been asked this before, like who's someone that inspires you? And honestly, and I know this sounds like the most narcissistic and self-consumed thing, but I'm like very much my own inspiration. Oh, I love that. Avery, right? that is amazing. <laughs> and you should tell everybody that because we need to hear that more often. I want to keep thriving or I want to keep living a life that I love to live and enjoying myself. And I think that like always feeling that that could leave in a second, it's like, there's an element of gratitude that's involved in that way of thinking. So I'm super grateful for everything. But at the same time, like, I'm like, this could all be gone in a second. So yeah, I think it's like this element of having this like survival mentality. I think that when you have some of these situations, like I've been fired numerous times, I've been laid off numerous times. I've found myself in jobs that I thought were going to be amazing that weren't, you know, and there's all these curveballs that have been thrown at me my entire life. So I just feel like the shoe's always about to drop. <laughs> That's what moved me into entrepreneurship. Ironic, it wasn't, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur and I'm going to like think about it for six months and then I'm going to work on a business plan. I'm going to do this. Like I saw some people doing it and I was like, okay, like it's either I start applying for jobs and put myself at risk again, or I like try to make money right now because like I need money now. And uh, that's what I did. And that's basically how Bloom was born. And when did you do that? How long ago did you start with Bloom? Uh, technically speaking, two years ago. But Bloom technically under the Bloom name is a year old. Uh, it was formerly known as Good Recruiter, which didn't totally capture everything that we do. Good Recruiter is still a name that I love, but it just doesn't, it doesn't work for the full suite of services and just like even like a reflection of what I do and what I offer as an individual. It just doesn't work. Yeah, no, that's amazing, Avery. And, and I, I do want to touch on the whole concept of survival because I too am a survivor. I'm a survivor of domestic violence, intimate partner violence. I've survived terminal cancer. That was my motivating factor also in starting this podcast is because I, I often approach life as in living in the moment because we don't know 
what the next moment holds. But it's inspiring, right, to the general public that there are people out there who are actually, after they've survived and through their thriving journey, they continue to put themselves out there. So can you talk to me a little bit about what that thriving looks like and what helps you wake up in the morning every day and how you deal with adversity now? I think as I get older, I just, and I just know, and I feel confident that, you know, when I am facing some form of adversity or a challenge or an obstacle that I know that I can move through it. I've just feel like I've lived so many lifetimes. Like I'm 32, but I feel like I've it had all these like different chapters. Yeah, you're, you're an like old 32, my friend. <laughs> it's strange, like just between jobs and partners and just like these life experiences and some of the traumatic experiences that I've had. Like it just, I feel and know wholeheartedly that at the end of the day, I have two choices. I can let these situations that happen consume me, right? Or I can let them fuel me in a way that, you know, that give me life and energy and more perspective. I see some of these situations as gifts because you learn about yourself through them. You learn what you can handle. You learn what you can deal with. You learn what you can grow through, right? I think it would be great if more people talked about these things more openly. And that's the reason why. And that's what makes me feel more comfortable with sharing because I know that I'm not alone. And I know that there's not a lot of people that are in positions like I'm in that feel comfortable or confident enough to talk openly about their lived experiences in a way, especially as a black woman, that's not necessarily working in like a technical type of role. I wanted to feel more empowered at work. And it was like that for me has been entrepreneurship. That's not for everyone though. Uh, But what I can say is I've never been assaulted at Bloom. You're very well known in the last few months, especially. And that's kind of how I came across your social profile in being an advocate and being a voice to those out there who may not be able to be heard. Can you talk to me a little bit about what motivated you to start to create those postings and how people have been reacting to them? frustration and anger. (laughs) I think that with the uprising of the Black Lives Matter movement for those folks, like for me, who talk about this day in and day out at work, we've been offering diversity, equity and inclusion training for years. Uh, Even prior to my joining Bloom, uh, I was offering these types of this type of education and learning experience for people at different companies and beyond. I think that it was just like watching the the video of George Floyd being murdered, I think it just threw me over the edge. And I went into a spiral of rage, like complete rage. And then the events that followed just were pretty defining moments for me in terms of like where I was and how I would approach this conversation with people before I think that I would navigate it with a with a lot more tolerance and understanding and patience. And I'm just not there anymore. And what was happening on Instagram was me just basically pouring out my frustration. And I was seeing a lot of really fantastic pieces of education going around. And I was having, you know, conversations with people about race and gender and privilege and defunding the police. And, but what people were missing were some of the smaller conversations, like the, the passable things, the things that you can almost in some cases laugh off and move on from. But that's what survival looks like, right? That's not what thriving feels like. I want black people to thrive. And that means being at work and not having to deal with any microaggressions. Companies have a moral obligation to hold their end of the bargain, right? And like, and to create these safe spaces. So 
that's why I just started talking about some of the simple stuff, like what you shouldn't say to black women and what non-black people can do to help right now uh, and beyond and putting people in the direction of like where some really great resources are. And it was nice. And I think that being able to educate people in that way has been really good and well suited to me as well, because you can build that boundaries there. Now, with that said, <laughs> you're putting yourself out there when you're sharing those views and those opinions. And I would say that I have a lot thicker skin than I thought I did. Which is part of your survivor, right? <laughs> yeah. Inside you. It's like DNA now. I feel like I've just been through so much. They have no idea. Of course, I think that it's provoked some not so great conversations with loved ones and people closer to me. And those are the ones that sometimes hurt and sometimes are uncomfortable and suck. But for the most part, you know, I love Instagram. I think it's such a great way for people to connect and learn and grow. But uh, there are people on there that don't have the best intentions that take away from some of these meaningful conversations. But what I love about it is that they are very easy to ignore or to remove from situations if you need to. People like myself appreciate it. There was one particular post you wrote about microaggressions and it so resonated with me because for me, I'm South Asian descent, born and raised here, but I've been living with microaggressions all my life. And although I'm brown uh, inside and out, people see me and they don't know what I am. So I am a witness to a lot of the racism that happens locally here in Toronto. And I know that it's one of those things where people want to believe that we are a different society than that in the United States and that we are better and that, you know, things are more taboo here. And while that may be true in some ways, from what I witnessed even prior to COVID and, and the BLM uprising this time around, it's been interesting. It's definitely been interesting. And what I didn't realize too, is that the microaggressions that we live with, that we almost normalize as part of our life because we think, oh, it's not that bad or the person just didn't know is really right out racist. Definitely. I totally hear that. I, I think that if we all take those moments and really it's not on us to educate people, but specifically for people that don't identify as part of a marginalized community, specifically white folks, right? If you hear a microaggression, right? If you see something, I, I always keep recommending to people to say something. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, Avery, I got to say, I'm really hopeful. I'm hopeful for the future. The optimist in me sees my children and the way that they speak and the way that they have the awareness of others. I hope for the best. I hope for our future. I'm also in that place as well, like where I'm very hopeful, I'm feeling very optimistic, but I'm challenging people to move into that space where they're taking sustained action. All right. And they're like making allyship a daily practice and they're thinking holistically about what this learning journey looks like for them. I really like to describe like the work around diversity, equity, and inclusion as like a moving target. It is constantly evolving and we're constantly learning and understanding more. So you people need to kind of continue to learn and continue to take action. So long as people do that, I think that like being hopeful about the future, maybe we'll shift. Maybe we'll be in that time eventually where, you know, folks don't have to feel the way that they feel on a daily basis about, you know, how they identify and they can just focus on some of the other things in life that can be so much more challenging and, and difficult for us to go through because life is hard. Avery, in every episode we ask if you have anybody in mind that you'd like to dedicate this episode to or honor today, do you have anybody like that in mind? <sighs> Honestly, I'm just, I'm going to honor women, identified people that have gone through 
moments in their life that they thought would break them. So for those people, uh, if they're listening, this was for you. Thank you so much, Avery. Thanks for joining us today. It was an honor. Thank you. Avery is brave and strong for coming out and talking about her experience with such poise and confidence. She is an anomaly, but I'm confident with our podcast that other women will reevaluate their position when it comes to the assault they have experienced. As we speak more about this topic, we can pave the way for lasting change, not only as women, but in our judicial system and assault culture. Thank you for listening to Calm After the Storm. The podcast is dedicated to telling stories about survivorship, healing, and thriving after trauma. If you like this episode, support Calm After the Storm, Survivorship, and Other Stories by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Calm After the Storm will be taking a small break for the holiday season. Make sure to tune back in to another inspiring story on January 8th, 2021. Happy New Year, and I hope to see you soon. Calm After the Storm is created by me, Amy Syed, and produced by Quill Incorporated. Special thanks to our guest for today, Avery Francis. Be sure to check out her initiatives at www.buildwithbloom.com or at Avery Francis on Twitter and Instagram.